Well, the book of Matthew here, as we read through our first six verses, Matthew is the first of four gospels, of course, that begins the New Testament. Matthew is the perfect bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. You see, the Old Testament was all about preparing us for the promised Messiah, all right? It's the Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed, whereas the New Testament now is Jesus Christ revealed. And Matthew sets out to show that Jesus Christ is indeed the promised Messiah, the one that the Old Testament scriptures were prophesying of. This is why you see all throughout the book of Matthew that term fulfilled or fulfill. It's used 17 times in the book of Matthew, the most of any of the gospels. And we also see that phrase, it is written, or as it is written, used another nine times. And so Matthew is very purposefully leading us to and directing us to scriptures of the Old Testament to show us that this is exactly what we've been preparing for, waiting for what God has promised. And it's now being revealed in and through Jesus Christ of the New Testament. Now, Matthew, was very purposeful in his writing. And he's writing to present Jesus as the king of the Jews. Matthew is a Jew. He's writing to a Jewish audience and he's writing about a Jewish Messiah. Now we of course know that Jesus came to save the whole world, not just the Jewish people. He came first to the house of Israel, but we know that the gospel was meant to be expanded out for all people. So Matthew is writing with a very specific agenda. Within Matthew's gospel, there's over a hundred quotations or allusions to Old Testament scripture. Matthew wants to reveal very clearly to his Jewish audience that the Messiah promised in the Old Testament and the Jesus that's revealed in the New Testament are one and the same. This Jesus fulfills all of those Old Testament prophecies of the promised Messiah. So the Gospel of Matthew writes to reveal Jesus as the King, the promised Messiah. Throughout Matthew, we see the kingdom of, of God um, revealed. The, he, he uses the term kingdom of heaven. That's very exclusive to the Gospel of Matthew, but it's revealing the King has arrived and his kingdom is being established. So we have four different Gospels. Now you might go, why do we have four different Gospels? Doesn't Matthew cover it all? Well, there's four different gospels, but each of them, you see, are portraying Jesus in a bit of a different light. Not that they're contradicting one another, but rather complementing one another. You see, in Matthew, Jesus is seen as king. His royalty and his reign are emphasized. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience to reveal their king has arrived. In Mark, Jesus is seen as a suffering servant. His servanthood then is emphasized. And Mark wrote primarily to the Romans of his day, and it's a fast-paced book. It's a very busy book. Luke, Jesus is seen as the son of man. It's his humanity that's emphasized. Luke wrote to a Greek audience who are fascinated with Plato's ideal man. So Luke presents Jesus as the son of man, the perfect man. And then in John, Jesus is seen as the son of God. In John's gospel, it's the deity of Christ that's emphasized. And so we see John writing to all men everywhere for the purpose of presenting Jesus as the universal savior and that all can be saved in and through him. So we see these four gospels and each writer writing to a different audience with a different mindset, with a different perspective to show and portray Jesus in a bit of a different light. But when you bring it all together, you see just the great uh, fulfillment of all that Jesus is. Now, these gospels and the way that they're writing is very interesting because in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, 
And in Revelation 4, we see the four living creatures being mentioned. They're, they're cherubim, they're angels. And they had these distinct faces that ultimately reflect what we see in the gospels, what we're seeing in and through Jesus. Look at what Revelation 4, verse 7 to 8 says. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Isn't that going to be great in heaven just to hear that repeatedly on, just on repeat, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. Praise the Lord for that. So why do I bring this up? Well, we see the, the, the description of these four living creatures, each of these different descriptions and, and, and faces, that of a, a lion, a, a calf, a man, and an eagle. Well, how does that tie in with the gospels? Remember, in Matthew, Jesus is seen as king. It's his royalty that's emphasized. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we see that face of the four living creatures is that of a lion representing what Matthew is portraying Jesus is as. In Mark, he's seen as a suffering servant that's pictured in and through a calf or an ox, as Ezekiel describes in his description of the four living creatures, which is kind of a very servanthood kind of animal doing the work. So Mark is presenting Jesus as a suffering servant represented by the calf or the ox. And in Luke, he's seen as the son of man. And so the third face uh, of the living creatures was that of a man. And then in John, He's seen as the son of God. And so we see that four living creatures like the, the flying eagle and, and representing the deity that this eagle flying in the heavens, Jesus who came down from heaven as the son of God, perfectly God and yet fully man. And so we see all these represented and described in this way. And there's more you could add to it. When you look at the way that the tribes camped around the tabernacle, they were all camped in various uh, ranks and by tribes and, and in fact, uh, numbers gives the number of each of those tribes that camped around the tabernacle. And if you do a study on that, which if you go to our study of numbers, you'll see, when you see an overview of the tribes camped around the tabernacle, do you know what it pictured? The cross. And you can see that by the numbers that are given in each of those tribes that it would have branched out to form a cross. Beautiful. But each of those tribes camped around were represented by a main tribe and the emblem or the, the uh, ensign of those tribes was represented by a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Again, fulfilling what we see in the gospels. God is such a God of order and design and having all these things lining up to really, again, reveal what we see in and through the gospels and what they point out in Jesus. Having four different accounts of Jesus allows us to see all these different perspectives and different purposes for uh, including what's, what's written in the gospels. Remember, John wrote in John 21, verse 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Oh, we have four gospels, but yet we're still just scratching the surface of the greatness, the wonder, and the majesty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, we can continue to dive in and explore, and we just continue to be fed and, and just be in awe of how great our Savior is. Isn't that wonderful? So four gospels still doesn't cut it, but we have four to really fulfill as much as we can about who this Jesus is. And since Matthew is writing to proclaim Jesus as the king, well, it's important to prove his rightful line to the throne. So Matthew begins with a genealogy. Jesus's legal line is shown through the line of Joseph. His kingship is being proven here, essentially. Luke's gospel 
includes a genealogy as well in Luke chapter three, but Luke traces Jesus's bloodline to the throne, and he does so through the line of Mary. Whereas Matthew 1 goes to the line of Joseph, his stepdad, to show his legal or rightful, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Establishment to the throne, right? His, his, he, he fits that perfectly. So we're gonna talk more about those two lines in a minute here, but let's look at verse one again. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, Son of Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So we see this genealogy, this line of Jesus. That word genealogy in the Greek is the word Genesis, which means origin or beginning. I'll just abbreviate that. Okay, origin or beginning. So the book of Genesis is really the book of beginnings. That's what the name implies and means. It's a book of beginnings. Don't let anybody tell you that Genesis is just kind of an Old Testament outdated book. There are people today claiming to be Christians that will say, you know, those first chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 to 11, are really just allegorical. They're not literal. Can I just tell you, do not listen to that. Do not believe that because this is the foundation. This is the beginning that's setting everything in in motion and establishing the framework and the foundation for all that comes afterwards. And it's all found right there in Genesis 1 to 11, the very beginning or origin of what God was doing. And so it is literal, it is true. And so we see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now genealogies were very important for Jewish families. Why? Well, first of all, they proved your national status as a Jew. So you wanna be able to trace yourself back to really identify yourself as a Jew. Secondly, they, they revealed what tribe you belong to. So you can trace your genealogy back to see what tribe you're part of. And thirdly, it also qualified certain Jews for religious duties, like those of the Levites or serving in, in, in priestly uh, service. And so these were very important for a Jew. And so Matthew, being a Jew, writing to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah, is sure to include the genealogy to prove his rightful line and, and, and heir to the throne here. So this genealogy is gonna be split up into three groups of 14 generations each. We'll see that in verse 17, but three groups of 14 generations. I'll write that down. Three groups of 14 generations, all right? Now, that's kind of interesting. It's gonna go from Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian captivity, and then from the Babylonian captivity right to Jesus. Now, there's more people that are in those generations that aren't included in this list, so there's more names. We see just kind of a, a specific list of names given to form three groups of 14 generations. Now, most likely that was for uh, easier memorization of these things. Now, what's very interesting, David, who's mentioned first next to Jesus, this was very important because of who David was and that from his line would be a person that would reign on the throne forever and ever. So he was, you know, the king. Uh, but what's interesting is David's name, every Hebrew letter has a numeric value to it, all right? And David's name in Hebrew equals 14. 
So what's interesting is when you see, and David is mentioned in verse 17 a, a couple of times to reference again from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylon captivity, three groups of 14 generations. So this would again be very fitting for memorization, for linking it all to David here. And there's an amazing study that you could do of the heptatic structure of Matthew 1. Because you can read this and, and most people just kind of go, oh, flip over this, it's a bunch of names. Let's get on to the good stuff. Let's get on to verse 18. Let's get on to chapter two. Let's just move past this. This is boring stuff. But yet we see this incredible design of God because all through verses one to 17, we see this heptatic structure, the number seven. God's number, the number of, of completion, right? And we see this system of sevens being used all through this that is just, again, beyond human ability, scientists kind of look at this and go, this is absolutely divine in a sense. And I can pass that link on if you're interested, let me know, I'll pass it on to you. But um, it's, it's fascinating, we don't have time to get into it all today, but uh, just anyways, we'll leave it at that here, okay? Now, what's interesting is we get into this genealogy, we see the same beginning, the book of the genealogy, we see the same phrase used in Genesis 5. And there we have in Genesis 5, another genealogy. It's the genealogy of anybody? Wanna take a stab at it? The book of the genealogy of anyone? Adam, it's Adam, all right? So, all right, that's okay. Come to the next service, shout it out, and you'll be a hero, all right? Okay, it's the genealogy of Adam. Now, Here's the thing, we're all born into that lineage, right? We're all born into that line of Adam, sons of Adam. But here's what it says differently in Genesis chapter five. You'll see this phrase repeated oftentimes, and they died, and they died. We'll, we'll track somebody and their, their lineage, and they died. You see, that's exactly what happened here in the line of Adam. That's the reality for all of us because sin brought death and we're all born into sin, but the genealogy of Jesus Christ is all about life. There's no mention of death in verses one to 17. It's all about begot, begot this person, begot this person, it's all about bringing forth life. And that's what Jesus came to do as the second Adam. He's come to bring life for us all. It says in Romans chapter five, verse 14 and 15, nevertheless sin or death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him, Jesus, who was to come, but the free gift is not like the offense, for by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Oh, we were all products of Adam. Death reigned in our lives. We were dead men walking. Sin separated us from God. But now in and through Jesus Christ, we've been given life, forgiveness of sin. We don't have to be a product of the first Adam. We get to be a product of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who now brings about the righteousness and the forgiveness of sin that we so desperately needed, that we could not do for ourselves, but it's all done and fulfilled now in and through Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Now, this genealogy, again, it, it begins with David, 
as we see here, and Abraham. These are two very important people because God made a covenant with Abraham. It's mentioned in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17 of Genesis, Genesis chapter 22. We see this covenant with Abraham that he would become a great nation and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And here now, we begin to see the reality and the fulfillment of that. How? Through Jesus Christ, who's gonna fulfill that. God made a covenant with David right here. So David's mentioned again. And that covenant you'll see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 16. What was that covenant? Well, that covenant was that God was going to ensure that there would be a, a, a person from David's offspring that would reign and rule on that throne, that he would establish his house, his lineage to the throne. And now we see through this genealogy, Jesus fulfilling these covenants, these promises that God had made with both Abraham and David. That's a wonderful truth that emerges right from this genealogy, that God always keeps his word. Aren't you glad for that? There's no time, my friends, that you ever have to wonder if God will really do what he said. Maybe you've been in that place before where you felt the Lord says something, you go, ah, but will he really? Does that really apply to me? Is that really true for my situation? Listen, there's one thing that God cannot do, and that is lie, right? Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is a promise-keeping God, and we can live confidently and dependently upon his word. Amen for that. Now, here's another great thing to note from this genealogy. It's a genealogy full of grace. Full of grace. How so? Well, most genealogies would only include the name of the fathers. It was very man-driven, all right? Uh, yet in these first six verses, the names of four women are given, some of which perhaps you'd want to leave out for avoidance of embarrassment or shame. But look at who's listed here. First of all, we see in verse three that Judah begot Perez, by, uh, Perez and Zerah by Tamar is mentioned, first woman mentioned. She's mentioned in Genesis 38. Her story is a very seedy story involving Judah's unfulfilled promise. Tamar went and prostituted herself and tricked her father-in-law Judah to have a child with her. That's the kind of stuff that you would see in tabloid magazines or soap operas, let alone in the word of God. You're going, really? You would think that's something you would just want to leave out, yet here her name is being carried on throughout history as one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder how even the line of Jesus includes imperfect people whose lives are filled with messy mistakes. Amen. Aren't you glad for that? That it's not just washed over, erased. It's included for us to remember that the Lord is bringing all people together. No matter what has marked your past, your history, there's room for you in the line of Jesus. Second woman that we see is mentioned in verse five. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Oh, here's another stellar woman in God's word. She's mentioned in Joshua chapter two. And she's referred to throughout scripture, mentioned other places. In James, I believe, in, in Hebrew, she's mentioned. She's referred to as what? A harlot, a prostitute. A prostitute who was living in pagan Jericho, a people group that were, that were rebellious against God, foreign to the things of God. But yet she put a little bit of faith in the God of Israel and she's accepted. Listen, the lesson for us is God is no respecter of persons. God does not look at anybody and say, no, you're too far gone. No, you're too dirty. No, you're too, sin you're too much of a sinner. 
God is no respecter of persons. And all who put their faith in Christ are received, my friends, and accepted. All who put their faith in him will be saved. And Rahab is here in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Next, we come to Ruth at the end of verse five here. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth is an outsider. She's a Moabitess. Ruth chapter one, verse four reveals that to us. This is the offspring. The Moabites are the offspring of the incestual relationship between Lot and his daughter. Genesis 19 tells us that. So Moabites were enemies of Israel, a pagan people, yet God calls out Ruth and brings her into the family God through a wonderful relationship with Boaz, a, who became Ruth's kinsman redeemer, paid the price to bring her in. It's a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ as our, as our kinsman redeemer who paid the ultimate price so that we could be brought in and enjoy fellowship, relationship with him and be now the bride of Christ. This is our story, my friends. We were outsiders, enemies of God, walking in a land of death, but our Savior has redeemed us and given us new life. Ruth is a reminder for us of that right here in the genealogy of Jesus. Lastly, we see in verse six, Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her. Now we know who that is. It's Bathsheba. Now what's interesting is that you could have easily just said that David the king begot Solomon by Bathsheba and left it at that. Would have been much more sanitary. But no, it's included that, oh, it's by her who had been the wife of Uriah. You see, Bathsheba Bathsheba is out <laughs> sunbathing on her rooftop Maybe, you know, being a bit of an exposition, uh, ex, whatever, you, I don't know, ex, exhibitionist, thank you. Expositing, I was gonna say, guys, but no, she wasn't doing that. Exhibition, we don't know what was going on. She's up there bathing and David looks upon her and they enter into an adulterous relationship. She was married to Uriah at the time. So what does David do? He goes, well, we gotta, gotta get rid of Uriah. Puts him out in the front lines of battle, said he would be killed and he does get killed. So we have the story with Bathsheba and David of adultery and conspiracy and murder. Another great soap opera episode right there. And yet here it is included in scripture. And from Bathsheba, they lost their first child, yet God, amazingly in his grace, provides Solomon, one of Israel's greatest kings. Again, just an incredible story of great grace that we see by the women who are mentioned in this genealogy of Jesus that Otherwise, wouldn't typically be mentioned in a Jewish genealogy. Listen, if you want to present a pure and noble kingship, you'd want to make sure there's no skeletons in the closet. At least you want to keep that closet door closed as well as you can. But all of this is brought to the open and reveals to us that Jesus didn't just come for the righteous. He came for all that were broken and in need of saving. He came for the wretched. He came for the sinners. He came for those that were so far gone, and yet God reached down and brought them in. See, too many people think today that they cannot come to Jesus because, well, I'm too messed up. God can't accept me. 
people think I need to clean myself up before I can turn to Jesus. Let me tell you today that you cannot clean yourself up. There's nothing you can do to better yourself. You simply need to come to Jesus and allow him to do that work for you that you cannot do for yourself. Because he will clean you up and he will make you new. His family tree is full of a bunch of nuts and there's always room for more, my friends. That's the love and the grace of Jesus. You've been invited in to be a part of that, not because you're good, but because he is. So don't fret over your past, your background. Don't let those things hold you back. Come to Jesus in repentance. Say, yeah, this is where I've been. I need to turn from that. I'm turning to you, Jesus, so that I can receive all that you have for me, so that I can receive life and be begotten into the family of God now. Rejoice in the future that Jesus has for you. Now, what's interesting is all these women we're Gentile woman too. Here's Matthew writing to a Jewish audience. And he says, let me just include some Gentile women just so you guys know that it's not all about you. God has great plans. Yes, he's gonna work through you as Israel, but this is getting extended to the whole world. All are welcomed in. That's a fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham that from you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see that wonderfully and clearly here. Now, in verse seven, as we move into the list of kings, once again, there's many wicked and evil kings. Manasseh is mentioned. He's one of Judah's worst and most evil kings, yet God allows him to be in the line of Messiah as well. Look at verse seven. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Now, there's an interesting prophecy that takes place in Jeremiah 22, verse 28 to 30. If you're taking notes, write that down. I hope you are taking notes. Jeremiah 22, verse 28 to 30. And in there, one of the kings is mentioned, that prophecy, Konia or Jehoiakim. It's the same person as Jeconia, who's mentioned in verse 11 of Matthew 1. So Jeconia, Konia, or Jehoiakim, all the same person. And there's an interesting word that's given as a prophecy against Jehoiakim. It's in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, it says this. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. But but hold on, we've already seen God's covenant with David that his throne would be established forever, that there would always be a descendant of David to rule on the throne. So how does this work? See, that verse in Jeremiah 22 confused Jews for centuries and wondered if God has gone back on his word. But we know God cannot do that. Here's how God gets around this. Jesus is the successor to the royal line of David through Joseph, his stepdad, who's mentioned in, in, in Matthew chapter one. But again, since Joseph had nothing to do with Jesus being born, Jesus didn't receive that bloodline of Jeconia. Jesus did not have that blood curse line in him. He was not born through Joseph, yet through Joseph's stepdad, he now had the right to the legal or, or royal line to the throne. But Luke now in Luke three gives us the genealogy of Jesus through Mary, which goes back not to Solomon, David's son, 
but to Nathan, David's other son, and it bypasses Jeconia. So Jesus is the rightful heir by heredity and by blood through Mary's line and skips over Jeconia's line, but is the rightful heir through Joseph. That's why the virgin birth is of utmost importance and necessity. Jesus, or sorry, the Lord God has accomplished his work in spite of that prophecy, fulfilling that prophecy, and yet still bringing a rightful heir to the throne of David. So amazing. Verse 12 to 16, you got in front of you. Now notice here in verse 16, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Notice the begots. Stop at Joseph. Again, Joseph didn't beget Jesus. He had no part in his birth. Rather, it's Mary that's clarified as the one of whom Jesus was born. In the Greek, that word whom is singular. It's in the feminine meaning that it is speaking of Mary specifically and not of Joseph. Now, we're going to talk next week about the very name of Jesus, what it means. We'll talk about his Hebrew form of that name. We'll get to that next week. But verse 17 ends with this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Matthew's genealogy answered the important question a Jew would rightfully ask about anyone who claimed to be the king of the Jews. Is he a descendant of David through the rightful line of succession? And Matthew answers with an emphatic yes. It's all proven and shown right here. And that list, verses 1 to 17, gives us 46 names of different people. Names that include some good people and some not so good people, but yet all people who are now linked to Jesus Christ. My friends, we've been qualified. We've been brought in, accepted in the beloved. We're linked to Jesus Christ. We're in the family. If these people got in, there's hope for us all. Cling to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's our Savior. He's the one that brings us in now as children of God and as the bride of Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Choir, would you come up? Worship team, come. And uh, we're going to enjoy a, a song by the choir in closing here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word here today. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, that you're not calling perfect people. You're calling people that know they're sinners and who are in need of saving. And I pray for those today that are sitting here or maybe listening online that, that don't know you. They don't know if they're saved. They, don't, they never heard what it means to be forgiven of sin. I pray right now that you'd begin to call them to you. And if you're listening to this message right now, whether you're here in the building or online, and you don't know that you're right with God, the Bible tells us all you need to do is call upon the name of Jesus. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And what we're called to do is simply turn from our sin, that's repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him as the one who died on a cross to forgive you of your sin, to pay the penalty for your sin, and who rose again to give you life. All who come to him will be saved, and that's proven here in Matthew chapter one. Would you turn to Jesus and accept that free gift of salvation today? If you've done that, would you let us know? Come and talk to us or email us because we'd love to share more with you about that. Lord, we thank you for all you've done. And we give you the praise and the glory today. In your name we ask, amen.